Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be discussing God's view of marriage and divorce, how deceased infants, children, and people who lack mental capacity get to heaven, and how God views wealth. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, we'll begin our lesson. Okay, let me open this up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this group and the opportunity to gather together and study your word. And as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning, I just ask that you put on our heart those areas that we need to change, particularly as we'll study today, those of us who are married. Help us to just treat our spouses the way that you would have us treat them and be great representatives of you. Show them how much we love them and how much we care about them and how grateful we are for them. And at the same time, as we'll study today, don't let our earthly possessions get in the way of us being able to be thankful for you and keep you at the forefront. Don't let our focus on the things that you've given us here in this world take our focus off of you. Father, I just ask that you speak through me, speak through those who speak up today, and guide our discussion. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we finished Mark chapter 9 last time, so we're going to begin in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is now going to teach about divorce and marriage, and certainly, I think I've showed this to you before, God truly hates divorce. That comes from Malachi 2 verse 16. I'll read that for you. It says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And so God truly does hate divorce. And we're going to read about how he created marriage between one man and one woman. And it is a bond that is not to be broken for life. So we'll be studying about that as well as a little bit about divorce. And it's so interesting how divorce has really lost its stigma in our culture today. It's widely accepted. Nobody even bats an eye about it. Jesus is going to teach us about that as we begin Mark chapter 10. So let me begin verse 1. And rising up, he, that's Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So Jesus and the disciples, they leave Capernaum, which, as we've talked about, was his adopted hometown since he began his ministry in Galilee. But now his ministry in Galilee is over. We're going to see he's beginning to make his way to Jerusalem, his last trip onward to Jerusalem. Mark and Matthew, in their Gospels, they don't cover Jesus' ministry in Judea, but Luke and John do, so you can take a look at that. But this is the region beyond the Jordan to the east. It's called Perea. And both Jews and Galileans would pass through this area often on the way to Jerusalem, really to avoid Samaria. We've talked about that before. Jews hated Samaria. And so Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. We'll see that if you just take a quick look over in verse 32. You can see that's where he's headed, his last trip to Jerusalem. I'll pick up again in verse 2. And some Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders, came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they do not like Jesus, and they're not seeking truth. They are trying to trap Jesus with this question. 
and they're really hoping to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd. They know what Jesus' previous teaching has been on that. We'll go over there and take a look at that here in just a second. Over in Matthew, if you want to be finding that, over to the left, we'll go to Matthew 5. But in the Jewish culture at that time, a man could divorce his wife for any reason. I mean, for anything, or really even no reason. And divorce was very, very common, even more than it is today. Herod Antipas ruled over Perea, and he killed John the Baptist because John the Baptist disapproved of Herod's immoral divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife. We talked about that a few lessons ago. But divorce was so common that they thought Jesus' teaching would turn the crowd against him or make Herod mad if he talked about how God hated divorce. So let's continue on. Verse 3, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And so this is referring to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And if you go take a look at that, it doesn't condone and it doesn't condemn divorce. It just says you can't remarry your divorced wife if she remarries. That's what those verses say. But the Jews had taken that and said, oh, you know, divorce is no problem. It's not a sin. You can divorce for anything. Verse 5, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And he's going to basically say, it surely doesn't say that you can divorce your wife for any reason. Verse 6, Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus is saying that the way God created this, Genesis 2, 24 says, a husband is joined together with his wife. And the Hebrew word for what's used in Genesis 2, 24 is the strongest bond possible. The two people are connected together in a bond that is not to be broken. When you think back, Adam and Eve time, divorce was really impossible because there wasn't anybody else to marry at that time. The Old Testament forbids adultery. It's one of the commandments. You can look at that in Exodus 20:14. It was actually punishable by death in Leviticus 20:10. The Old Testament also prohibited coveting another person's spouse. That's in Exodus 20:17. So that was forbidden, and the way God created marriage, the product of the two becoming one resulted in a child. God's plan for marriage, breaking the marriage bond, also then breaks and damages the family bond. We've seen the products of divorce. Children from divorce usually really, really struggle and have lots of problems. Let me read verse 9, and then let me explain a little bit more. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So that's what Jesus is saying, and Jesus is telling the disciples, marriage is the work of God. And breaking a marriage destroys what God has made. Verse 10, And in the house the disciples began questioning him about this again. So by this time in Jewish history, as I said, divorce is so common, and they weren't executing anybody. They weren't stoning anybody for adultery at that time. They were far away from God's standard for marriage. 
verse 11. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, that's Jesus's statement. Jesus doesn't mention the biblical exceptions to divorce here in Mark's gospel, but both the Old Testament and the New Testament both allow for divorce due to adultery. Let's just go take a quick look at that. Let's first go over to Matthew 5. I told you we were going to go take a look at that. Let's go over to Matthew 5, and I'll begin in verse 31. And it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. So we talked about that just a minute ago. But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, so that's an act of adultery or other sexual perversion, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus here allows for divorce, but doesn't command divorce for adultery. It's allowed, but it doesn't say if your spouse commits adultery, you must divorce them. In fact, forgiveness would trump that. But divorce can then lead to adultery. You see that if you get divorced and then remarry, then you're committing adultery. Except for the limited exceptions that I'll describe in just a minute. We see in verse 33, again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows but you'll fulfill your vows to the Lord. So God's design for marriage is that it's exclusive, one man to one woman for life. Here, Jesus is saying your only option is remarriage to your divorced spouse before she remarries. Now, let me show you some further scripture on divorce. Let's take a look at Matthew 19.9. Just flip over to the right a little bit while we're in Matthew, Matthew 19.9. And that says... And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So, very similar teaching. Now, let me address remarriage. So, we've talked about how Matthew 5, verse 32, and Matthew 19, verse 9, provides an exception, allows for divorce in the case of the other party committing adultery or having sex outside of the marriage. What about remarriage? I'll tell you that there are different schools of thought from very studied Christian scholars on this point, but I think the better reading of Matthew 19.9, verse 9, is that if your spouse has sex outside of marriage, it is permitted to divorce that spouse and get remarried. Certainly most believe that Matthew 19.9 says that divorce is allowed, although remember, God hates divorce, so he would rather there be forgiveness and working it out and staying together. And when there is divorce, there are going to be lots of consequences on the children. They will suffer more than likely. But I think that the better reading of Matthew 19.9 is that in the event you do divorce the spouse that has committed adultery, that you are then free of the bond of marriage, of that bond of marriage, and you are allowed to marry someone else. Because it says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it's like the exception is allowing you to divorce and remarry. 
I think that's the better reading, but I will also tell you that there are devout Christians and Christian scholars who view that as only an exception for divorce, but not allowing remarriage. I don't believe that's what that says, but I do want you to be aware of that. And while we're talking about remarriage, we'll be talking in a minute about if a non-believing spouse deserts a believing spouse, that the believing spouse is freed from the bond of marriage and can remarry. And I'll also point out to you shortly how if your spouse passes away, you're free to remarry. So that's remarriage. Now let me take you over to 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15. That's over to the right of where we were in Mark. And that says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Now, let me clarify that. Sanctified, where it's used here, it means set apart for God's purpose. This doesn't say justified. So a non-believing spouse doesn't become justified and their sins forgiven and go to heaven because their spouse was a believer. That's not what this is saying. It just means that they're set apart for God's purposes. Again, it doesn't mean they're redeemed or justified or salvation. But there will be blessings through the marriage. Verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So this is saying, this is an exception. If you have an unbelieving spouse that then leaves, leaves the marriage, departs, or wants a divorce, The believing spouse is then released from the marriage, from the bond of marriage, and is allowed to remarry. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the believing spouse in this case is freed from the bond of marriage, is free to remarry, just like if the spouse passes away, as we see in verse 39. Let me drop down there. It says, this is again still in 1 Corinthians 7, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So she should only remarry a believer. So what we see is Jesus has taught that divorce is permitted in the case of adultery. We just saw in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, and Matthew 19, 9. And here we see that if an unbelieving spouse leaves the believing spouse, then the believing spouse is freed from the bond of marriage. You can see God actually would prefer that they stay together. We see in verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So sometimes an unbelieving spouse can come to faith because of what they see in their believing spouse. But Paul's teaching here is that there's no reason to fight against an unbelieving spouse. If they want to leave, then you let them leave. And that preserves peace in the family. Now, God still hates divorce. Divorce is a sin. You're breaking a bond of marriage that God did not intend to be broken, assuming that the marriage came together and that was God's will. You sought God's will to begin with, particularly to Christians. It is a sin, but remember, sins can be forgiven. So we shouldn't look at people who have gone through a divorce 
and look down upon them, judge them. Sure, they have sinned because of their divorce, unless it met one of these exceptions. But we all have sin. Everyone has sin. And Jesus can forgive that sin as well. So let's go back over to Mark. And it's interesting that now Jesus is going to start talking about children. Very interesting, right after teaching on marriage and divorce. Because, as I said, when divorce happens, it impacts children severely. I've seen it through my counseling. We've all seen it. Children from divorced marriages generally have a lot of issues, lots of trouble. And then even in their own marriages, sometimes they bring that baggage into the next marriage. And it can just cause a lot of difficulty. God hates divorce. Let me just point this out. Remember these exceptions. We don't see those in Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark is preaching primarily to the Romans. That's who his gospel is directed to, Gentile Romans. And a lot of these laws that then you see some of these exceptions that Jesus was talking about in Matthew's gospel, Matthew was writing to the Jews. And they had the Mosaic law. They knew what God's laws were. And so that's where these exceptions are discussed. But they still apply even today. But that's probably the reason that Mark doesn't mention them in his gospel. Okay, verse 13. And they began bringing children to him, that being Jesus, so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So these parents, they wanted Jesus to bless their children And they wanted their children to know God and have eternal life. And they thought by bringing them to Jesus, some of these are probably believers, they wanted Jesus to touch them. And yet we see the disciples rebuke them. Children in the Jewish culture at that time were looked down upon. They couldn't make any decisions. They couldn't do anything. They really couldn't do any good works which is what Jewish people required in order to have eternal life along with Abraham's blood. And so children were not held in high regard. And so here we see the disciples are reprimanding the parents for disturbing Jesus with their children. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. So he was angry. He was outraged. And he said to the disciples, he said to them, not to the parents, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And we see it's unqualified, no conditions. Jesus is saying these children should not be outcast, even though they were outcast in the Jews' eyes. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it at all. So Jesus is rebuking anyone who thinks that they can enter heaven, they can earn their way, or they can contribute to their salvation. He's saying, no, you've got to be like a child. You have to have total dependence and trust in Jesus. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Children receive gifts joyfully from their parents. They don't have anything to contribute. They don't have their own works. They don't have the ability to earn it. They don't deserve it. And so Jesus is saying children are a great example of salvation through God's grace alone. A parent's most important duty is to teach their children about Jesus so that they can accept the gift of grace and salvation and faith at the age of their accountability. As I said, Jewish people thought that since children couldn't understand the law and they weren't capable of doing good works to earn their salvation, 
They couldn't enter God's kingdom. And here Jesus is saying that children who don't have mental capacity to believe yet, they're either of an age that they can't believe, they don't understand, they're too young, or maybe they have mental impairment, they are part of the kingdom of God's grace alone. They don't yet have the capacity to receive or reject the gospel, but once they pass the point of accountability when they can understand the difference between good and evil, now, at that point, they'll be held accountable. And if they fail to repent and believe the gospel at that time, well, then they are going to suffer the consequences of unbelief and go to hell. Infants are still sinners, just like everyone else. We're all sinners, and infants are as well. You can look at that in Romans 5, 12 through 21, 1 Kings 8, 46, Ecclesiastes 7, 20, and Romans 3, 10 through 12. The way I think about this, it's not that these young kids that lack mental capacity, it's not like they have eternal life and then lose it at the age of accountability. And by the way, the age of accountability is different for each child, but it probably begins somewhere around 12, 13, 14 years of age. But it's not like they have eternal life and then lose it, because if that was the case, it wouldn't be eternal life. The way I look at it is it's really like they're held in sort of a temporary conditional grace until the age of accountability. And then once they reach the age of accountability, they have to make the decision to either place their faith in Jesus Christ or reject the free gift. And we can see places in the Old Testament where young children before age of accountability, but when the child dies, was given eternal life. One of my favorite, and I've gone there before, is 2 Samuel 12, verse 23. And we can go over there and read that. I won't go over the entire story. I've talked about it with you before. But that's where David loses his first son as a consequence of having sex with Bathsheba outside of marriage. And we read in 2 Samuel 12, David was really upset when he was told that the child was going to die. After the child was born, the child was very sick, and David was fasting and weeping and praying to God. And then as soon as the child dies, David cleans himself up and acts like nothing's happened. And his servants ask, we see in verse 21 of 2 Samuel 12, it says, Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Verse 23, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? So it's not like he can bring him back to life. But here's the key teaching here that I'm referring to. David says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And I think that stands for the fact that children who die before being old enough to understand what it means to place their faith in Jesus Christ, they go to heaven, as well as those with mental impairments, like my daughter, who lack mental capacity to be able to understand what that means. So I hope that helps some of you who may be listening that are struggling with either a friend or maybe your own child who has passed away at an early age. They go to heaven. I think that's what Scripture says. You can look at the same thing in Job 3, 11 through 17. 
And again, it is interesting that Jesus goes right into talking about children after talking about marriage and divorce. And I think I left off verse 16. And Jesus took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, ran up to Jesus, and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, as I said, he's headed towards Jerusalem. And this rich man, we'll see he's rich when you look down in verse 22. It seems like he's a hot prospect. He knew that he didn't have eternal life. He asked the right question to Jesus. What does he need to do to have eternal life? And he's asking the right person. He's asking Jesus. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is addressing his incorrect belief that his religious good works make him good in God's eyes. All these things that he was doing, all these religious things, that doesn't make you good in God's eyes. No human effort can ever make you good in God's eyes. Verse 19 Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, what we're going to see is this guy, he's a Jewish guy, he thinks he is righteous. He's actually self-righteous. But he feared that maybe there was just one more work, one more act that he needed to do, one more outward thing, one more outward religious thing that he needed to do. He certainly, as we'll see, doesn't recognize his own sin. His self-righteous external acts weren't going to get him his salvation. He's an outwardly religious and self-righteous man, and he's going to have to choose between himself and his pride and his possessions versus God and eternal life. Let's read on. He says in verse 20, he says, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Okay, so... From the time of accountability, like we were just talking about, from the age of accountability on, he says he's kept all these things. Now, first of all, you know that can't be true because we're all sinners. There's no way that he has kept every single one of these commandments. But he thinks he is self-righteous. Verse 21, in looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus knows his pride. Jesus knows that his possessions are more important to him than his relationship with God. And Jesus said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus knows his heart. He needed to see that he had this sin, and he needed to repent before he could then believe. He valued his possessions more than anything else, even more than God. Verse 22, but at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. So he just walks away. The price was too high for him to follow Jesus. He worshiped his own wealth and not God. He was unwilling to acknowledge that he was a sinner in need of a savior and he needed God's grace and mercy. He thought his wealth and his lofty position and status was a sign that he was in God's favor he was one who took the broad way to destruction rather than the narrow way to Jesus in the way that Jesus was offering right there to him. No matter how much Jesus loves us, 
he is not going to override our choices. And this man chose to follow his possessions. This may be the only place in the Bible where someone came to Jesus with a need and then left, went away from Jesus unfulfilled. But again, it was his choice. It was by his choice that he just walked away. Verse 23, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? He's saying that wealth, it gives a false sense of security. People with wealth, it is difficult because they begin to think they don't need God. Let me show you a verse that supports that. 1 Timothy 6.17, it is obvious, but let me go over there and read that to you. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich. So God does bless people with money. It's not the money that is the problem. It's not saying all rich people are going to hell. Let's look at this verse. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So it's okay to enjoy the blessings God's given you, even if he's given you a lot of wealth and money. But don't fix your hope on that. Rely on God. Trust him. It goes on in verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So be a good steward of what God has given you, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That means into eternal life so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So there's nothing wrong with wealth. In fact, we read in the Old Testament, there were many wealthy people, Abraham, David, Solomon, Job. They were all very wealthy. But you can't become conceited and focus so much on it that you trust in it. Don't make it your idol. Everything we have, God gave us, and we're to use it in a way that glorifies God and thank Him for it rather than depending on it like we earned it, like we did it ourselves. It's from God. Let's go back over to Mark. I'm going to show you a couple of other verses about money. The problem that Jesus is saying with wealth is people can become consumed with the things of this world. Let's look at, while we're in 1 Timothy there, look at 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. This verse gets misquoted all the time. People say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It's not money. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It says, And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So it's the love of money. It's when your focus is on money rather than stewarding it, realizing God gave it to you to steward. Let's go look at Matthew 6.21. First gospel, Matthew, Matthew 6, 21. And that says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, I can probably tell where your heart truly is if I just look at your calendar and your checkbook, where you spend in your time and where you spend in your money. Is it really focused on God or is it focused on worldly possessions and pleasures and that type of thing? Are you truly being a good steward with what God has given you? Let's look at Luke 12, 16 to 23. Just go to the right, fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And here's Jesus talking. It says, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. 
I will tear down my barns. Look how many times it says I and me and my. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So this is someone who didn't thank God for their blessings. He's prideful, self-centered, self-focused. Instead of thanking God for everything that God's given him, he's focused on himself. And he didn't have room for it all. He didn't want to flood the market and drive down the price. He didn't even think about giving any of it to others less fortunate. All he could think about is how he could set himself up for life. And he never thanked God for it. So what do we see? God took his life. Look in verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So planning without thinking about God's will, it brings disaster. And then one more verse. Let's go over to 1 John. That's not the Gospel of John. That's the Epistle of John right before Revelation. 1 John 2.15. And it says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, meaning it's from Satan. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So this world, it's going to pass away. God doesn't want us to love this world. We're just ambassadors here. Okay, let's go back over to Mark and keep going. Verse 24, And the disciples were amazed at Jesus' words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, so he's calling them children. In other words, they're immature in their faith and their understanding of Scripture. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are struggling here. The reason they're amazed is because they thought that having wealth and money meant that you were blessed by God. Verse 25, Jesus says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So riches are a handicap. Wealth is a handicap. I mean, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But look what he says. Verse 26, continuing on, it says, And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Verse 27, Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So only God can change our hearts. We can't save ourselves. We can't use our money to save ourselves. The Holy Spirit causes us to desire to repent and to be saved. That's the grace, that's the gift that God gives us, and then gives us the ability to ask God to forgive us our sins and save us from judgment by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to acknowledge our sin. And so hearing this, listen to Peter's reaction. Remember, Peter is sort of the spokesman for the disciples. And he has a way, generally, of putting his foot in his mouth. Verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. In fact, some of them even left their families behind. And Peter's pointing out that they did leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, so they'll receive more even in this life, 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. But look what he says, along with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. So in this life, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be blessed. But we should also expect to have trials and persecutions. We've talked about that. That's how God continues to mold us and help us become more Christ-like and help us grow in our faith. And it says we have the promise of having eternal life as a believer, but we can also expect to have trials. We'll have blessings here, but we'll also have trials. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So those who reject Christ, they're going to be spiritually poor in eternity. They may be rich in this life, but they're going to be separated from God forever into eternity. And those who forsake earthly riches and follow Jesus, they're going to have eternal rewards. They're going to have their sins forgiven, be at peace, and be in eternity with Jesus. So just to summarize what we've talked about this morning, Jesus never ignores those who call out to him. We saw how he did that with the rich man today. We saw how even the people who were bringing their children to him, Jesus never rejects them. So he's there for us. We can call out to him. If there's anything that's hindering our ability to follow Jesus, we need to get rid of it. If there's earthly possessions, if there's something in our life that we idolize, it's something that gets in the way of us being able to worship Jesus and be thankful, we need to get rid of it. We need to practice humility not self-promotion. Like the rich man, he wasn't humble at all. He thought he had it made. He even thought he'd obeyed and done everything that Jesus had commanded him to do. And yet his focus was on his worldly possessions. That was what was the most important thing. And Jesus, God, is offering him eternal life and he just walks away. And finally, God hates divorce. We need to serve each other in our marriages, those of us who are married, We should uphold the vow that we made before God, and we shouldn't ever even think about breaking that covenant that we made before God. God has blessed us, those of us who are married, with our spouse. It's a gift. My wife, Dare, is the greatest gift God has ever given me outside of the gift of his son in my faith. And so we need to be thankful for that, and we need to treat our spouses in that way realizing that they are a true gift that God has given us and honor that marriage covenant that we have made. So I hope each of us who are married will go home this evening and give our spouses a hug and tell them how much we appreciate them and thank them for putting up with us. Thank them for that unconditional love that they continue to show us day in and day out. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.